go, to, go ahead and turn in your Bible or on your app or however you get your Bible to Isaiah 28. We're going to be in Isaiah 28, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. All right, Lord, thanks for giving us another uh, time to open up the Bible together. We thank you for it. We're just grateful to you, Lord, for, for your kindness and in, in preserving for us your word. We ask that you would speak to our hearts today. We pray you'd get me out of the way and we'd see Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. All right. So we're going to be in chapter 28. Um, that we're going to work our way through this chapter. Um, but it's been a little while uh, since we've been in Isaiah. Well, we, st- we got back into it last week and we had taken a few weeks off before that. So let me just give you uh, kind of a recap of where things are. Um, the purpose and point of Isaiah's message is that God saves sinners. That's his message. Um, and, and really, the part that we play in God saving sinners is simple. It's that we trust God. We trust he saves. That's how it works. And so uh, that's what he wants from us. That's all he wants from us. Uh, we are called to trust him and, and receive his, his gift of salvation because he's trustworthy. And, but here's the thing that we have to realize. We, we are always running off to other salvations. Human beings do that by nature. We're always running off to something else that we think will save us in the moment, some temporary salvation. But what God really wants us to do is to recognize how great of a Savior he is, how great he is. And I, and I know, I mean, you all know this too, that trusting God in our broken world isn't an easy thing to do. Um, but what he wants from us is to get our hearts to see and feel safe and be satisfied in him and him alone. That really is what Isaiah is trying to get across, that he alone is our salvation, that he alone has the power to get us to where we need to be. And, and all the other attempts that we make to find our salvation in other things will ultimately leave us empty. So chapter 28 begins a new section in the book. It starts a new section in Isaiah, um, and it goes from chapter 28 through chapter 35, which we're going to take a chapter at a time, essentially. And in this section, what God is affirming is that he has the power to fulfill all of his saving purposes that he has already told us about in the first 27 chapters. So if you think about the sections of the book, chapter 1 through 27 lays out God's plan and purpose to save his people. Chapters 28 through 35 lay out that he's going to prove to us that he actually can do this and that he's willing to do this and and he's going to do this for those who trust him. And then you get into 36 through 39 and there's this little kind of aside about this guy named Hezekiah, this king of Israel. And so we'll have a little bit about him for a few chapters. And then you get into 40 through 66 and then from there it's just all good news. It's like all happy good news from that point on pretty much. So that's sort of how uh, this is laid out. But chapters 28 through 35 affirm that God has the power to fulfill his purposes. And basically what's happening here is that God is going to look us right in the eye. 
He's going to look you right in the eye. He's going to say to you that he can and will deliver on every single promise of the gospel. And the question is going to be before us is, do we believe him? Do we actually believe that, that this is true? Does Jesus rule over the mess called my life? Should I actually expect the work of the Holy Spirit in my experience? These are the kind of questions that Isaiah is going to prompt us to ask in this uh, chapter and in the the chapters going forward. Do we actually believe that he is able to save? Do, Do we actually tangibly see the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives? Do we see the work of the Holy Spirit happening in us as we go forward? And so... Uh, that's really where this is going to go for the next uh, couple of months as we work through these chapters. Um, so let's get to chapter 28 specifically. Um, in this chapter, what, what Isaiah does is he sets up a couple of contrasts. Um, there's really three sections to this chapter. There are two contrasting ideas. Uh, you know, a contrast is showing the, the opposites of something, right? That two things that are opposed to each other. He's going to show us two different contrasts, and then he's going to conclude the chapter with two encouragements. And so that's always good. It's always good to end with, with the encouragements. But we, we have to see these two contrasts first. And, and so we're going to look at these, and the first contrast is found in the first six verses. And the idea uh, that Isaiah is going to draw out of this is he's going to show us two different kinds of crowns, like what you'd wear on your head. Uh, so that's the analogy that he's going to use in the, in, this, in the first six verses. But let's look uh, at the first one, um, in verse 1 through 4. And then we'll see the contrast uh, in verse uh, 5 and 6. Here's what he says. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down the earth with with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. All right, so the key word there is crown. It's mentioned a couple of times, and it will be mentioned one more time in um, chapter uh, verse 5. So three different times in this section, the word crown is used. Uh, The question is, why is he using this analogy? Why a crown? What's that about? Well, I think what, what we're getting at here, what he's getting at, is he's trying to probe into the things that make us feel important, right? There's, there's not a whole lot out there that's so self-aggrandizing as a crown, okay? You put a crown on your head, you're saying something about yourself, right? <laughs> that's, that's just what, what it is. <clears throat> and so we see this idea of a crown is really all about, you know, our, our glory. Uh, it's all about what we think makes us feel important. <clears throat> and so that's what uh, the, the crown is meant to point us to. It appears three different times. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Um, could you grab my water? It's right there next to you. Um, so here's what he's doing. He's looking up at Ephraim. Now Ephraim, thank you, is Ephraim is in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, Ephraim is the northern kingdom. If, if you know some of the Old Testament history, um, after Solomon <coughs> had, a, um, had his kingdom, the, the kingdom of Israel was divided. It was no longer a united monarchy. And so you had Ephraim in the north and Jerusalem in the south. And so he's looking up to the northern kingdom. And he's pointing out that they are living in the lap of luxury up there. Right? He's talking about how amazing it is up there. <coughs> he says that there's a rich valley of those overcome with wine. There is this uh, proud crown that they wear. They, they have all of these amazing things going on up there. They're very comfortable. And yet, uh, what he's telling them is that this is the crown that they're wearing. Like, they're super impressed by how comfortable they are, and they're really happy with all of the, the stuff that they have going on up there. But it's all temporary. It's all vapid. It's not ultimately going to fulfill them. And so they're wearing this crown, believing that what they have is going to be forever, and it just isn't. <coughs> so as Christians, we know that we have no continuing city. Well, you know what I mean by that? We, we have no eternal kingdom here on earth. The earthly kingdoms rise and fall. They, all, we, they always do. You just have to be a student of history to see that and know that. Crowns will eventually roll in the dust and everything will eventually flounder. But as Christians, our hope... <coughs> man, I'm really... Get, I've got the cough. Um... I don't cough until I get up here. This is the, that's the weirdest thing. Um, it's one of those one of those deals. But uh, the 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 earthly kingdoms rise and fall. But the the true the the true kingdom that we cling to is not an earthly kingdom. It's a kingdom where we have a king that men did not crown, except with the crown of thorns. But but a king who can't be dethroned. We're citizens of a city. But it's not a city that we built. It's a city of God that he built and that we can't destroy. We have to, as Christians, keep our eyes on that. That, that the things that we have here on earth, um, whether they're comfortable or difficult, they're not eternal. And so putting that crown on our head of, wow, I'm, I'm in comfort, I'm in luxury, things are going great for me, we live in a wonderful uh, time and and in some ways, yes, we do. Right, we're we're blessed in our nation with a lot of good things, and we should be thankful for those things. But we shouldn't put our hope in those things. And yet, then there's other times where it's very hard to see that, where it's hard to see the good things, and it's especially hard to keep our eyes focused on the eternal things, because we live in a hard world. Uh, the truth is that every single one of us is just one phone call away from absolute misery, right? We are. We know that. We don't want to think about that, but we know it. And so as Christians, our hope can't be in what is here and only here. Ephraim was focused so much on their comfort and luxury that Isaiah is basically pointing out to them that this 
is a terrible God to, to run to, a terrible salvation to try to run to because it won't last. So in our hard world, in our difficult world, um, it's sometimes hard to see the eternal kingdom that Christ has for us. But, we, but it's actually a blessing that we live in a hard world. It, it can be a blessing. Ray Ortland, uh, who's a pastor, uh, was a pastor, he just retired from his church and he's on to other ministry opportunities. Um, but he wrote the, these words. I thought they were helpful. Um, he's got a very interesting take on things and this is one of those. He says things that other people don't, not because he's trying to be creative, but because he just thinks, thinks through things a little differently than most of us. Here's what he says. He says, it's a mercy to live in troubled times like ours. When the world is falling apart and secularism is discredited and we have no clever answers for our needs, he says we're less likely to be taken in. It's more believable now that our salvation is only in God. The collapse of the city of man is an opportunity for the city of God. And he says it's a good time to be living for God. Now, when he says that, what he's, he's trying to get at this is not that we should long to be in hardship, but what his point is, is that when we are in difficulties, it's very hard for us to convince ourselves that our man-made solutions work, right? When, when everything fails, it's really hard to go and pat ourselves on the back and go, wow, we figured it out. So what that leaves us with is an opportunity to turn to the Lord. And that's why so many of you and so many people around our world turn to Jesus in some of the hardest times of their lives because there's nowhere to go but up if you're at rock bottom. So you have to turn your eyes upward to someone else or to, to another Savior. And, and so I think that that's where Ray Ortland's trying to get at with this. Is it's not that we should long to have hard times. It's not that we should pray for hard times, but we can see those hard times as an opportunity to cling to the Lord and not to be swayed by some clever human invention that will ultimately fail us. We need to cling to the Lord. And, and so we first have this, this crown, this contrasting crown uh, we're going to see in a minute is opposed to the crown in Ephraim, which is just this fading glory that they have up there. But look at verse 5 and 6. Here's the second crown in this section. It says, In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. Did you catch that? The Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Christians have a different kind of crown on our heads. When we inevitably come to the end of ourselves, when all of the drinks run out, when the lights fade, when the party's over, when all the things that we're trying to find fulfillment in leave us empty, that's when we reach out for him. And when we reach out for him, we find him and we find him to be all that we ever longed for. He is a crown of glory, the scriptures say. In other words, when Jesus is our treasure, when he is more delightful than all of the world, when we 
actually like like the fact that the first will be last and the last will be first or that the weak are strong in Christ or the fools are wise in Christ. When we actually have a change of mind about the world we live in and we see Jesus and what he says for all that it is, then we will gladly begin to identify with our rejected Savior. And that's when we actually start making contact with what's real in the world. That all of the stuff that the world offers us, it can, it can like, you know, numb us for a while. It can distract us for a while. But you know from your own experience, as I do from mine, that none of it actually lasts very long. The drinks run out, the, the, the movie ends, the distractions that we try to fill with, with whatever it is, ultimately doesn't last. But Jesus does. Jesus is our true crown of glory. So what Isaiah is saying here is that when we get to see through um, the world's deception and the world's nothingness, and, and our hearts begin to prize Jesus Christ above all things, that's when we get to see the spirit of justice mentioned here in verse 6 and the strength that he gives to those who trust him uh, empower us to bring into the world the only true good that exists. It's when we have a turned heart to Jesus that we begin to grow and help others grow. And that's really the whole point of the Christian life, isn't it? It's to love God, to love people, and to help people love him. And we can't do any of those things without him first changing our hearts. So we see these two crowns, and that's the first contrast in these, in these verses. But the, the chapter goes on to talk about another contrast, and that is two messages, two words or messages that we, that we can be either taken in by or hear uh, and be changed by it. So let's look at verse 7. Um, here's what it says. These also, so let's stop there for a second. These, who's he talking about? Who is Isaiah referring to when he says these also? Well, he's, he's turning his eyes around away from Ephraim to Jerusalem. So now he's referring to what's going on in the southern kingdom. That's what he means when he says these also. He's turning his attention away from, he's not just going to pick on the northern kingdom, he's going to now talk to the southern kingdom. And look at what, what's going on there. It says, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. Some translations translate that beer. So I'll, I'll use beer because I think that's, that's a good word. The priests and the prophets reel with beer. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with beer. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment for all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. That's a pretty picture, isn't it? Um, here, here's what he's saying. He's, he's looking at the prophets and the priests of the southern kingdom, and he's saying these guys are just out of control. They are physically and spiritually uh, vomiting up all of this garbage. And so he uses some really gross language and imagery 
of tables being filled to the brim with vomit. There's nothing grosser than vomit on the kitchen table. And if, if you have kids, you know that, right? Like, it, there's just nothing grosser than that. And so that's the picture of what is happening. What's going on here is this, that the priests and the prophets of Isaiah's generation are drunk with their own trendy wisdom and drunk physically as well. I think there's a double thing going on here. But they're looking at their own wisdom and going, wow, I'm so smart. Look at how, into, and I'm, I'm going to show you how, why it's that direction in a second. But what he's really seeing is them just vomiting up their foolishness, vomiting up their, their philosophies, and it's all just junk. It's garbage. It's not helpful. And so here you have that contrast. That The message of the prophets is a, a message of drunkenness and vomit and nothing of, of good there. And then in verse 9 and 10, this is interesting, um, they, the prophets, uh, actually turn their attention to Isaiah and they mock him. And he's going to talk, talk about that. Look, this is a quotation. He's quoting the prophets of, of Israel. And this is what they say. To whom will he, and he refers to Isaiah. They're talking about Isaiah. To whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now that's, this little section here is very awkward in English, okay, but we'll, we'll get, get to what it means. He's, t- he's just like recounting what they say about him, and here's what they're saying. They're, they're basically complaining that Isaiah's message isn't for them because it's way too immature in their minds. He's like, basically they're saying that the only people that should really be listening to Isaiah are the babies, right? Those being weaned from the milk, these, these infants, these little ones. They, yeah, his message is good for the babies, but it's not good for us. We're way too sophisticated. We're way too intelligent. We, we, we get things that are much deeper than Isaiah is telling us. And so they're mocking his message and they're mocking his mission because they believe that they are, are above him and that they shouldn't have to listen to baby talk. And so they're basically saying this, well, you're, you're a fine teacher for the nursery. You can go downstairs and work with the kids, but you're not going to be teaching us. That's what they're saying. And then, then you got in verse 10 this really awkward sentence in English. It's, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here or there, here a little, there a little. Now, what in the world is that? Well, it's, it's a very difficult sentence in uh, Hebrew to translate into English, right? So Isaiah is writing in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, and uh, it doesn't come across very clearly when it's just literally translated into English. But basically, here's the equivalent of what they're saying. On, in the he- original Hebrew, we could translate this out to be Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. That's what they're saying. They're going, your message is just blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know, in the, in the old Peanuts cartoons, when the, when the adults are talking, it says wah, 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 right? That's, um, that's what they're hearing. That's what they're hearing from Isaiah. They just, they're not hearing anything that makes sense to them. And so they're just hearing blah, blah, blah. And, and so they're mocking him. They are 
vomiting up all kinds of horrible human philosophies that aren't going to save anyone. And, and Isaiah is there preaching the word of God in, in clarity, yes. In simplicity, yes. But they don't want to hear it. So what happens next in verse 11 through 13, uh, God is going to step in here and he's going to defend his prophet and the word that, that Isaiah is speaking. Look at verse 11. For by people of strange lips and with foreign tongues, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he has said. So these are God, this is a quotation from God's mouth here. This is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. What, what God is saying to them is this, and this is, this is so real. This is so real. Basically, what is being said here is this. One person can sit in the church and they can hear the gospel preached. And their hearts can say within them, I never knew God had so much to say to me. And I never knew that the Bible had this much to say. I can't wait to hear more. I can't wait to see more about Jesus. That's one response. And at the same time, in the same church, in the same room, another person can be going, this is so dumb. Why am I listening to this? Why doesn't the Bible say something impressive to me? Why doesn't the Bible say something at my level? I'm way too smart for this. I, I can get more out of it than this. The same message has very different impacts. That's what God is saying about the people in Israel right here. He's saying that for some, the message of Isaiah is rest for the weary. And for others, it's blah, blah, blah. And the question is this, what are you hearing? What am I hearing? When the Bible is opened up, are you delighted or are you annoyed? The offer of rest for the weary is offered to all, but only those who have ears to hear and hearts to receive will experience it. And so the the people of Isaiah's day Many of them, most of them, did not hear it. They just hear precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line. Here, here a little, there a little. Now, that's where um, God speaks into this. And, and as we go forward here, um, the rest of this section is just kind of showing us the outcome of what's going to happen. Um, verse 14 and 15 Here's what it says. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When we overcome whip passes, with, with, when the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood, we have taken shelter. So what, what's happening is, is God is extending to them an offer of rest, but they're going to take matters into their own hands. They're going to not trust the Lord, but instead they're going to enter into an agreement with what Isaiah refers to as a, an agreement with death, uh, Sheol, the grave. And, 
And what we know historically is being referred to here is they're, they're, they entered into a treaty with Egypt. So believing that Egypt could save them better than God could save them in, in, in the military sense. And so they're worried about what's going to happen and they decide, you know, we're going to make a deal with the devil and not with the Lord. And so they enter into this treaty with Egypt and it does not end well. But verse 16 um, through 22 goes on to talk about uh, where, where, this, where they should go. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Now that's the most messianic uh, moment in this passage where they clearly, he's clearly talking about Jesus as the cornerstone. We know the, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter in their letters use this verse to, to show that Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. Um, and if we believe in him, we won't be put to shame. Um, but the Lord is laying that foundation. He's saying, here's, here's where I've got for you. You don't need to make a deal with Egypt. I have all that you need. He says in verse 17, And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. And waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you for morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up on Mount Perizim as in the valley of Gibeon, and he will be roused to do his deed, strange as his deed, and to work his work, alien as his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Now, very simply, what God is saying here is this, that I, I love you and I want to rescue you. And I'm willing to be your ally through Jesus Christ. But you have to trust me. He's, he's again, just extending the invitation to his people. Say, you don't have to make this deal with death. I can annul that deal. I can get rid of that deal. You don't need that, but you've got to tr turn to me. You've got to trust me. And they're, um, spoiler alert, they're not going to, but, um, but that's where we're at. God is still pursuing his people. What, what mercy God has for his people. How merciful he is to us, how patient. God could have just written these guys off and been like, fine, you're done. But he doesn't do that. He never lets his people go. And so there we have the two different um, contrasts. The crown, the Lord is our crown, or the world is our crown. Which will we choose to wear? Two messages to hear. One is the message of life and rest. The other is the message of death and, and pain. Which will we listen to? Now he concludes this chapter with, two outcomes, um, two encouragements for us. Let's look at the first. The first is in 23 through 26, and then the second, 27 through 29. So we'll look at the first one here. It says, Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. 
Pay attention now. He's, he's calling us to listen to him. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in, in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Now, Isaiah is doing something interesting. In both of these sections, he's going to use the analogy of a farmer. And, and we're not talking about the scientific kind of farming that we do today. Uh, we're talking very basic, just peasant farming in Isaiah's day. He's talking about a peasant farmer, a serf, just a humble, really pretty poor man. But here's what that poor farmer understands because the Lord has shown him. Um, He understands that the upheaval of plowing is only temporary. Plowing changes to planting. Now, Isaiah mentions here how this farmer knows that, and he says in verse 26 that God taught him that. But what is Isaiah's point in that parable, in that analogy, where plowing happens, but it's not forever. You're not always bringing upheaval to the soil. Eventually you, you, you plow, but then you plant. And what's the point? What is he trying to get across? Well, here's what he's saying. If if that farmer, if that simple, humble farmer is smart enough to know that the, this endless upheaval does not do any good, then certainly God knows that the endless upheaval and endless disruption of our lives would also be fruitless. Does God break up the rocks of the hard soil of our hearts? Yes, he does. But he also does that to prepare our hearts for something new so that he can plant new life there. Isaiah is encouraging us with this because it may feel like we're just being torn up by the Lord. The Lord is just handing us so much that we're not sure that we can bear it. But what we need to remember is that all of this difficulty, all of this plowing in the field of our hearts is meant to give way to the life that he has to give us. That God has a life-enriching purpose for our pain. Yeah, it is hard when God works the soil of our hearts. And our hearts can be really rocky soil and needs a lot of work done. And it doesn't feel good in the moment. But what he does through that is to give us new life. We need to yield to him and let him do his work. That's what Isaiah is saying. God knows that it's not always going to be the plowing. and Eventually it has to be planting. But everything in its time. Then he goes on again in verse 27. He's using again the farmer. And he says this, Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it, 
With his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So here again, Isaiah looks to the farmer and he notices something different this time. And what he's noticing this time is that this simple man threshes and crushes his crops, but each crop requires different treatment, its own method of refinement. You know that if you have a garden, you know that different plants require different harvesting that you can't just do the same thing with everything. If you did, you'd ruin many things. And so here he's saying, he's just making that point that there's different methods for different crops. But even the correct method can't be overused. And so again, we're told that the farmer is made savvy to that truth by God, that God taught that farmer how to do that. So here's the point, though. Here's the spiritual point of this analogy. God himself knows exactly how to work with each one of us. He has the right touch for you. He knows what you need, and he does what you need in the times you need it. That's really good news. It's really encouraging that the Lord knows us he knows us and he knows how much we, we need the work done. He knows how gentle he needs to be at times. He does all that's best for us because he loves us and he knows us. We need to trust him. And I think we need to trust him, of course, in our own lives, but we also need to trust that the Lord knows what he's doing in other people's lives as well. I know it's very easy for us to look at friends and loved ones or family members and think, man, why can't they just get their act together? Why can't they just figure this out? What's, why are they doing what they're doing? But again, we need to trust that the Lord knows what he's doing with them. And, and I think as we take a step back and stop trying to micromanage the work of the Lord and let him do it, we'll actually see some real amazing things happen. But we need to be faithful to pray We need to be faithful to encourage them. We need to be faithful to to step in when needed to be used by God if that's what he's calling us to do in that moment. But we need to know that sometimes people aren't healed on on our timeline. And sometimes people aren't sanctified as quickly as we want them to be. And guess what? Neither am I and neither are you. So let's be patient with each other and trust that the Lord knows what he's doing with us, trust that he knows how to work in our hearts and give, have the long view because the Lord takes the time he takes in our lives and in others' lives. And so here again, we just, we've encountered an amazing encouragement that yes, we, we can foolishly choose to wear the crown of the world's glory or we can wear the, the crown of the Lord's glory We can listen to the message of God or we can listen to the message of the world. We have to make those choices on where we're going to go with those things. But at the end of the day, the Lord is patiently working our hearts and minds like the the patient farmer, knows when to plow, knows when to plant. He knows how to get the fruit in the proper way so as not to damage the the, the product. And, And the Lord is far better at that than any human farmer is. 
And he does that in our hearts.